Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So we're in a um, a very famous part of Torah, um, and we are in uh, the we're at the end of the book of Leviticus. We are in a double parsha, Behar Bechukotai. Um, they're for two years out of the three of the triennial, they are read together. Um, so we're kind of in the, you know, ending of one beginning of the other. So kind of in the middle of the two of them. Um, and the, the famous stuff that comes out of these partial, we're not going to read it this morning because it's not in our triennial, but, but I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say what this, these partial are really known for. And they're, they're really known for the laws around Shemitah. So around the seventh year where the land gets a sabbatical. And Yovel, the Jubilee, so that um, after seven sets of seven years, this should sound familiar to us from Shavuot, right? Seven sets of seven days brings us to the 50th day, which is Shavuot. Seven sets of seven years brings us to the 50th year, which is Yovel uh, in, uh, in the Latinized version of that Jubilee, right? The Yud becomes a J. The vet becomes a bet, so jubilee. Yovel, um, where where the land w- reset and went back to the original owners. So this was the the way that ancient Israel was attempting to address inequalities in the economic reality. Every civilization, really, um, unless you're completely communist or or pick another word, you know where. Um, like the early kibbutz system, everybody had nothing, (laughs) you know, like everybody had equal shares of nothing. Um, Unless you're doing something like that, there are inequities, right? Um, Truly, there are going to be inequities. And so Torah recognizes that, you know, we've, we've talked, you know, about Yitz Greenberg's, you know, covenant theology and that, that the covenant accepts the world as it is and tries to move it closer towards what it should be, that that's what the Jewish enterprise is all about, starting in ancient Israel. So that this is the ancient Israelite attempt. Shemitah and Yovel are, are an attempt to, to reset the economic playing field so that those who have been disadvantaged for, for whatever reason, um, whether because they don't know what they're doing and their crops fail or there's drought in their particular region uh, or they are ill and can't work the land what, or don't have children because they're barren, whatever it is, um, it is to reset that economic um, disadvantage because it is not supposed to be permanent. Um, and certainly this is a message we could be <laughs> listening to a little bit. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Robert's nodding, Mark's nodding, right? Because too too much right now we've accepted that the rich are going to get richer and the poor are going to continue to languish uh, behind and continue to be disadvantaged in ways that um, that poverty becomes generational. Um, so, you know, I heard Biden speaking this morning as I was getting ready and um, he was saying something about free community college. Like it's not enough anymore to guarantee public education, free education for all Americans up to 12th grade that now to compete in the marketplace of the world, which is now, of course, our economies are all tied together, that to really compete in the marketplace of the world um, in a global economy, our kids deserve and need at least two years of a community college paid for by the government. Um, that it's just not enough for them to have any chance um, in this in this world, those who are disadvantaged, if they don't 
um, have two, at least two years of college. So, um, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that Torah is thinking about, you know, is how, how can we um, best help those who are disadvantaged so that does not become generational? Um, because we know college changes the trajectory of generational poverty. The first generation to go to college can break the chain of poverty that has been in place for generations. I was the first one to go to college in my family. Um, and, you know, my mother's family was destitute and would have been the same had I not had an education. Um, so anyway, so, okay, so that's where Torah is coming from. That's where Shemitah and Yovel are coming from. There are other laws here um, in chapters 25 and 26, um, Bahar Bechukotai. Um, remember, we are in the holiness. We're in the H writer. So this is P. This is a P source. This is a priestly source, but from the perspective of H. So looking at looking at the ways that ethics and morals and values play out in everyday life and what are some of the rules and laws around that rather than ritual, rather than sacrifice, rather than what do the priests need to do to make it efficacious? How can we make the society morally efficacious? That's what H is concerned with. And that's, that's part of what these laws are about. All right. So, so, okay. So, so that's, that's first is the law code of H. Um, at the end of every law code uh, in Torah, all three law codes at the end, we have, how are you going to enforce them? Right? Like, you know, how do you enforce this? So it's a theocracy. Ancient Israel was a theocracy. God is the king. So these laws are coming from the king. And, um, and so they are enforceable by the king. So, so how does the king, how do you, how do you talk about that? How do you talk about the king will enforce the law, blessings and curses, right? So this is, this is the language of the ancient Near East around the consequences of either keeping the breach, keeping the covenant or not keeping the covenant. Vassal kings who were conquered by a, a bigger king would have to sign a breach, would have to sign a covenant with the conquering king. We've, we've heard about this before. Um, and so the, and at the end of that agreement of what the vassal king has to do um, comes the blessings and curses that will, will flow from either um, living by the covenant and keeping the agreement or not. This is very common. The language that we have here in Torah for blessings and curses is very similar to Deuteronomy, where we see another one of these sets of, um, of uh, consequences for either um, holding with the covenant or not, enacting the covenant or not. Um, and very, very similar language to the ancient Near Eastern documents that we have recovered. Um, archaeologically. So, so, I, so <laughs> I'm being a bit of an apologist to say this is formulaic language. This is absolutely formulaic, but I want us to look, because um, it is part of, this is really part of our Parsha is most of it is the blessings and curses, which usually make us super uncomfortable. Um, but I feel like I'm approaching it differently this year. And I want to invite you to think about it this way and see if it, if it holds true for you. 
So we've seen before that the blessings and curses were given, if you remember, on two mountains and blessings on one side, curses on the other, and the people are standing in between and and kind of hearing this is if you go this way, there's this is going to happen. And if you go the other way, this is what's going to happen. And I kind of feel, and I know I'm, I'm jumping the gun. Usually I do it backwards. We do the text and then I talk like this, but I want, I want to set, I want to set up a context that's a little different than what I've ever felt before as we go into reading these things. And that is, I feel like that's where we are right now. Shemitah is about everything lying fallow for a year. Remember, this was an agricultural society. It meant everything in the economy stopped for a year. That was an enforced retirement from life as usual for a year. Now, there were no, there were many Israelites who were not going to be happy about that, right? <laughs> there are many Israelites who are going to go, wait a minute, we are just living at the margins anyway. And now you're going to tell me I can't plant and can't harvest, and I'm going to give up three harvests or fruit, you know, or whatever it is. Only the poor could come get what was growing on the land during Shemitah. I feel like that's where we are right now, right? We have been forced into a year of not engaging with life and the economy the way we would want to. Now, many of us are very fortunate to have continued to have work, but work changed, right? Entirely. The things that gave us rewards at work, what else we got at work, how we did our job, what we were comfortable doing, all of it was upended and uprooted. For those who didn't work, it's like, okay, all the things you used to do were taken away. All the ways you used, not all, but you know, a lot of the ways you used to relax, the ways you used to interact pleasurably with the world, they were taken away for a year. Bubby has been sitting in her room for a year. She couldn't go to the communal dining hall. Come on, people, come on. That that right that that is not something most of us signed up for, right? Um, there, I'm not saying there haven't been benefits. That's a different conversation. Shemitah comes with benefits, but it also comes with real sacrifice. And it comes with a disruption to how we're used to doing things. So I feel like Shemitah, I'm, I'm seeing it in a whole different way this year. I feel like we are right now coming out of Shemitah. And here are the, here are the mountains, right, on either side, blessings and curses. If y'all can take what you've learned from COVID, the, the healthcare inequities, the people who had to work on the front lines, even with no vaccine, and putting their own lives in the lives of their families because they lived in multi-generational situations, putting their family at risk, the people who had no access to, to real food because they live in a food desert, and they couldn't take public transportation now to go get produce for their kids and their families. The people who didn't have access to the vaccines because they don't live near a pharmacy that has a vaccine, they don't have the internet to sign up for an appointment. COVID has revealed all of these deep inequities in our society. Black Lives Matter. Why are, Why did we see what was going on in the streets? Because it was shown to us over and over and over again and still that black men are shot starting with an air freshener on the rearview mirror. So they wind up dead, driving while black. So those protests in the streets didn't come out of nothing. They came out of really confronting institutionalized racism that leads to, to death and torture. For George Floyd, it was torture, then death. So what? So healthcare inequities, food inequities, inequities of those who had to be on the front lines, the inequities for, you know, 
what what institutionalized institutionalized racism means in this country. We just saw Central Synagogue in New York announced Sheldon Zimmerman, rabbi of you know huge status. He helped run the HUC. He ordained a lot of my colleagues in the Hartman program. Has been has been found guilty of of sexual abuse, lots of sexual abuse, including with a minor. And that relationship continued till she was in her 40s. She was unable to find a healthy relationship or have children um, with an appropriate partner because of how tangled up she was with him. Um, right. And, and, and Jody's lifting up. So I'm, so I'm talking about, right, also hashtag me too is not over, right? We tend to think, of, okay, that's done, right? It's not, right? So, so all of those inequities, Jody's talking about inequities in the education system. So these have all been exposed during Shemitah, during our imposed stepping back from what we're used to doing all the time, which is what Shemitah was supposed to do. Take you out of your routine, take you out of doing and shopping and going and doing and restaurants and vacations. And it takes you out and drops you down right here to take some time to focus on what's going on. Mehmet just added Asian hate. Absolutely. Um, Kung flu, right? So, um, so I, I think the way I'm looking at the blessings and curses section this year is actually, I'm feeling a little bit like, yeah, uh-huh, <laughs> right? Like here we are between the two mountains and what are we going to do on the other side of this? Shemitah and Yovel were about actually implementing change so that you didn't come out of Shemitah the same way you went in. It was an actual implementation of ways to change the, the economic system, as was Yovel. Yovel was a hard reset. So, and there's other laws in here, and we'll take a look now. Um, so, okay, the political and moral divide in our country, absolutely, right? All of these things. And so I, I'm just approaching this a little differently this year. If it doesn't, if it doesn't, you know, sing for you, that's fine. Um, but let's, let's, so let's take a look a little bit at the text and then we'll unpack a little bit more. So this is where our, our triennial uh, Parsha begins. So we're in the middle, you know, of the two Parsha, like I said, towards the end of Behar, towards the beginning of Bechukotai. If your kinsman being in straits comes under your authority and you hold him as though a resident alien, let him live by your side. Do not extract from him advance or accrued interest, but fear your God. Let him live by your side as your kinsman. So somebody connected to you becomes so poor that they need to sell themselves into indentured servitude. You are supposed to take them into your home and have them live with you so that they can retain dignity. And it's kind of like on you right? To, to help them out, do not lend him your money at advanced interest or give him your food at accrued interest. So you can't charge, you shouldn't charge interest on any money you lend this person to help them get back on their feet. Or if you're giving them, you know, actual staples, you know, to, to maintain, you know, a healthy diet, you shouldn't, you shouldn't charge them interest on that. We've seen this a lot. What is the what is the underlying logic? I am your God. Who took you out from the land of Egypt, 
Latet lachem et eretz kanaan to give you the land of Canaan, lihiyot lachem leElohim to be your God. So this is loaded. It doesn't look like it. It looks like just a phrase, but we know how loaded this is. What is it saying? All these laws that went even before the one we read. What is the justification? What is God's justification for demanding this of the Israelites? I took your butts out of Egypt. I gave you this land. Why? Not because you deserve it. Not because it was made for you or meant for you. I gave it to you so that I could be your God. And that means I gave it to you and your end of that bargain is that you allow me to be your God, which means you follow my instructions, which is to act justly with one another in these ways. If your kinsman under you continues in straits and must give himself over to you, do not subject him to the treatment of a slave, right? So if he has to become an indentured servant because he can't get back up on his feet, you're not to treat this person like you would a slave. He shall remain with you as a hired or bound laborer. He shall serve with you only until Yovel, right? Only until the Jubilee where he will be um, freed. Then he and his children will be set free from your authority. He shall go back to his family and return to his ancestral holding. For they are my servants, right? They're, they're not your servants. That's why Yovel, this is the this is the logic under Yovel from God's perspective. Why do they have to go free in, in the year of Yovel? Because they are my servants who I freed from the land of Egypt. They may not give themselves over into, it should say, permanent servitude. Because I freed y'all. And these are talking about Hebrew slaves. These are talking about Hebrew indentured servants. They can't be permanent because I freed them from slavery. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly. You shall fear your God. Such male and female slaves as you have, it is from the nations round about you that you may acquire male and female slaves. You may also buy them from among the children of aliens resident among you or from their families that are among you, whom they begot in your land. These shall become your property. So it's a different status in terms of slavery from the perspective of whether it's a Hebrew or someone who's not a Hebrew. If they're Hebrew, they cannot be, um, they're, they're different, they're treated differently. There's different laws. I know that we could spend a long, long time talking about that, but that's not where I want to go this morning. Um you may keep them as a possession for your children after you. Like, so we see in the, in the patriarchal stories, right? Like Rachel is given her, her handmaiden, right? And so is Leah by their families. They are given their, the, the parents, the mom gives her daughter as a wedding gift, her uh, handmaiden, right? So, so it could, it could cross generational. It could be across generations. If a resident alien among you has prospered and your kinsman being in straits come under his authority and gives himself over to the resident alien among you or to an offshoot of an alien. And the, I don't love the word alien because of our associations with it, but it's the gear, right? It's the resident alien, he, meaning not, not an, an Israelite. He shall have the right of redemption even after he's given himself over. One of his kinsmen shall redeem him. So if a Hebrew comes under indentured servitude to a resident alien, um, he doesn't give up permanent rights to his freedom. Instead, one of his kinsmen, it's on them to redeem that person, meaning buy them out from indentured servitude. All right. So then, and that's based on the Jubilee. Um, so this is how many years remain still the Jubilee. You shall be under his authority as a laborer hired by the year because in Jubilee, he's going to go free, right? If he has not been redeemed in any of those ways, he and his children with him shall go free in the Jubilee year. 
For it is to me that the Israelites are servants. They are my servants, whom I freed from the land of Egypt. Ani Adonai Elohechem. I am Yirhevavhe, your God. So you shall not make idols or set up carved images or pillars, meaning this is pagan worship. Um, I am Adonai, your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and venerate my sanctuary, mine, the Lord's. All right. So here comes Bechukotai, and here comes the blessings and curses that kind of enforce the laws. And we and we didn't read all the laws, but but it um, this enforces all of the laws that we uh, would have studied if we studied the whole thing. Okay. So what 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 happens if you keep all of this? If you have an economically just an ethical system, what what happens? I will grant your rains in their season so that the earth shall yield its produce and the trees of the field their fruit. This includes Shemitah. If you observe Shemitah, if you observe a rest for the land, I will grant your rains in their season so that the earth shall yield its produce and the trees of the field their fruit. Your threshing shall overtake the vintage and your vintage shall overtake the sowing. You shall eat your fill of bread and dwell securely in your land. I will grant peace in the land and you shall lie down untroubled by anyone. I will give the land respite from vicious beasts and no sword shall cross your land. You shall give chase to your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall give chase to a hundred and a hundred of you shall give chase to 10,000. Your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Remember in the ancient world, this was common, right? War was absolutely common. So we don't have to think of enemy as people coming at us with swords. Fill in the blank here, right? What are what are our enemies? What are the enemies of us being healthy, secure, happy, right, in good, secure relationship to our country, to our country folk? I will look with favor upon you and make you fertile and multiply you, and I will maintain my covenant with you. You shall eat old grain long stored, and you shall have to clear out the old to make room for the new. I will establish my abode in your midst, and I will not spurn you. I will be ever present in your midst. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. I, Yudhevavhe, am your God who brought you out of the land of, e- of the Egyptians to be their slaves no more, who broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, if you reject my laws and spurn my rules so that you do not observe all my commandments and you break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will wreak misery upon you, consumption and fever, COVID-19, <laughs> I'm just kidding. which cause the eyes to pine and the body to languish. You shall sow your seed to no purpose for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you. You shall be routed by your enemies and your foes shall dominate you. You shall flee though none pursues and differ all that. You do not obey me. I will go on to discipline you sevenfold for your sins. So I want you to know, and I wouldn't know either if I didn't read, um, you know, Dr. Kamienkowski's commentary, but there are four categories here, four stages in which Israel refuses to come back to the covenant. This is number two. We had the first one up here. If y'all don't obey, then at 18. And if for all that, meaning after all this happens, you still do not obey me. So now they're being recalcitrant. I will go on to discipline you sevenfold for your sins. I will break your proud glory. I will make your skies like iron and your earth like copper so that your strength shall be spent to no purpose. Your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. Now, here we go. Now, here's stage number three. And if you remain hostile toward me, and refuse to obey me, right? So if all of that didn't work, 
I will go on smiting you sevenfold for your sin. I will loose wild beasts against you, and they shall bereave you of your children and wipe out your cattle. They shall decimate you, and your roads shall be deserted. And if these things fail to discipline you for me, so here we go, category number four, or stage number four, and you remain hostile to me, meaning if you still don't turn it around after all of this, people look at India, look at India, what, what is it going to take? What is it going to take? How, how much suffering and death? How many crematoria? What's it going to take for us to get it that, that this kind of economic inequality is, right? Is like, really? Okay, anyway. Um, I will bring a sword against you to wreak vengeance for the covenant. And if you withdraw into your cities, meaning you think you can be safe by going into your walled cities, I will send pestilence among you and you shall be delivered into enemy hands. When I break your staff of bread, 10 women shall bake your bread in a single oven. They shall dole out your bread by weight, and though you eat, you shall not be satisfied. In Akkadian texts that we have, it says, may 100 women you know, bake and, and, and nothing comes out of it, essentially. But if despite this, you disobey me and remain hostile to me. Okay, so here we go. Another stage. I will act against you in wrathful hostility. I, for my part, will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your cult places and cut down your incense stands, and I will heap your carcasses upon your lifeless fetishes. I will spurn you. So this this implies pagan worship. I will lay your cities in ruin and make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not savor your pleasing odors, meaning your sacrifices won't mean anything at that point. I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who sell in it shall be appalled by it. And I will, and you, I will scatter among the nations and I will unsheath the sword against you and your land shall become a desolation and your cities a ruin. Some commentators suggest this is added post exile, that all of this stuff that's so horrible is actually what the, what the exiles witnessed with the destruction of, of Israel. Um, then shall the land make up for its Sabbath years throughout the time that it is desolate and you are in the land of your enemies. Then shall the land rest and make up for its Sabbath years. So y'all were not willing to stop working the land. Y'all were not willing to stop working so that the land gets a rest and the poor get to come pick up what's left. You weren't willing to do that. So this, all of this is going to happen. And then when y'all are in the hands of your enemies, exiled and in a foreign land, guess what's going to happen? The Sabbath, the earth is going to get its Sabbath. There are two ways this can happen, people. It can happen voluntarily, or you will be forced into a situation where the land will get its rest and you won't be on it anymore because you will have forfeited the right to be on it. As for those of you who survive, I will cast a faintness into their hearts in the land of their enemies, the sound of a driven leaf. Remember that book, Like a Driven Leaf? That's where it comes from. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, fleeing as though from the sword they shall fall, though none pursues. With no one pursuing, they shall stumble over one another as before the sword. You shall not be able to stand your ground before your enemies, but shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall consume you. Those of you who survive shall be heartsick over their iniquity in the land of your enemies more. They shall be heartsick over the iniquities of their ancestors. 
and they shall confess their iniquity. So here, if this is written by people who are, who saw the exile, who saw the destruction and the suffering and the horror and, and, and lived through exile, um, then what, what are they writing? They don't stop there, that that's what's going to happen. Boom, the end, right? God forbid. Where do they go? They shall confess their iniquity and the iniquities of their ancestors in that they trespassed against me. Yea, they were hostile to me. When I, in turn, have been hostile to them and have removed them into the land of their enemies, then at last shall their obdurate heart humble itself and they shall atone for their iniquity. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. So these people who are writing this right, are also writing about a return and tshuva and forgiveness and God taking the people back in love. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and also my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land for the land shall be forsaken of them, making up for its Sabbath years, meaning the land finally got what it deserved because y'all wouldn't do it. So I made it happen by kicking them out. Yet even then, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or spurn them so as to destroy them, meaning y'all are going to suffer. It's not going to be easy, but I won't destroy you. Annulling my covenant, for I am Yudhevavhe, their God, I will remember in their favor the covenant with the ancients, whom I freed from the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God, I am Yudhevavhe. These are the laws, rules, and instructions that Adonai established through Moses on Sinai between God's self and the Israelite people. All right, so I want to go to um, this piece on um, on Shemitah, and then we'll talk. Um, so he, so he's talking um, in this, uh, it's from Chazon, um, the, as you can see, the Jewish lab for sustainability. And he's, he's ta- who's, what's his name? Nigel. I, I don't, I'm not sure his full name, but you can look it up because um, we'll send you the link. So he's saying that we don't really relate to this idea of Shemitah and all this stuff that we just read about what to do with the land, the land, the land, the land, the land. And he said, because we're, because it seems to be about agriculture and we're not most of us farmers, right? And we, and we don't really live and it's not connected ritually or even narratively with the Jewish calendar. So most of us don't pay attention and don't, re- don't relate. And he says, but this is why it's important. Agriculture 20 centuries ago wasn't farming. It was life. What today is encompassed by economics, culture, politics, education, and so on. And so the teachings on Shemitah, the more you scratch them, turn out indeed not to be about farming, but rather the big issues that we still have to figure out today. How do we relate to time? What's the balance between work and rest? How do we do multi-year planning? How much is enough? How do we redress societal inequalities as inevitably they arise? What obligations do we have towards those who have less than us? What or should be the boundaries between humankind and animals? What's the proper role of debt in a healthy society? And how do we ensure the availability of credit, right? We just read about indentured servitude. That's really about debt. How do we deal with that, right? And ensure the availability of credit. Shemitah doesn't just address and critique how we live in the world today. It also, in the course of doing this, actually teaches us what Jewish tradition is about, what indeed it means to be Jewish. So that's why it's important that it's not just about 
um, farming. You can take all of these things that we just looked at in terms of what the laws were about, and you can say we can translate that into other kinds of um, economic realities, or even like we talked about education, sexual abuse, you know, all, all from by people of power and people in authority. All of those things are about h- how do we deal with the inequities um, of power inequities for, and that, that goes to racial injustice, that goes to, you know, sexual abuse uh, is about power. Um, other things are about material wealth. Um, other things are about access to, uh, to education, to, you know, those kinds of resources that are immaterial, but that are absolutely critical to people not having to be enslaved. Um, you know, how, how do we have fair lending practices? You know, I was listening to a piece on NPR about, you know, these neighborhoods where people drive through and say, oh, see, people of color live here. Look how run down and horrible it is. You know, but then you look at the actual lending practices around who gets a loan to be able to have a house and to be able to have it be theirs and for them to be able to afford home improvement, for them to be able to afford to do what it is to keep that property up. And it is skewed so badly against um, people of color that it's like, then it's a self-fulfilling, well, why would we lend to them? Look at, look at, look at how they keep their homes. Look at, look at their neighborhoods. Why would we, why would we invest in somebody of color buying a house in that neighborhood? It's a, you know, we know what's going to happen. The property value is going to go down because it's going to get run down. Well, that's, that's so backwards, right? It's like in terms of cause and effect, but we don't like to see it that way. We, we don't want to have to actually own that. Um, okay. Judith, I see your hand up. How do we honor the the cycle of Shemitah and, and Yovel in modern day, or do we? Well, we don't. Um, first of all, it only holds in the land of Israel, technically. Um, so we don't live in the land of Israel, so we don't do Yovel and Shemitah. We're, we're doubtful that Yovel ever really happened. It's very doubtful that Yovel um, actually happened because it's completely impractical. Um but and we know we know that the prophets yelled and screamed about the fact that people were not keeping Shemitah and they were not keeping the the free freeing of slaves of indentured servants and so the prophets are yelling and screaming about that so if they weren't even keeping that it's very hard to believe people <laughs> said oh okay but you can take my farm and give it back to its original owners right you know because these people were now landed wealthy these are the powerful people these you know these are the these are the top, you know, whatever percent. Uh, um, and so it, it's unlikely they would have done that. So so we're not sure it happened in the land of Israel at all, but clearly Torah wants it to and believes that's what's just and that's what should happen. Um, so outside the land of Israel, so w- remind me, Judith, and we'll go back and we'll look at what he says, the, the Nigel from Chazan, we'll see what he says about ways we might could incorporate a Shemitah Yovel consciousness um, in, in our world, but, and he just lifted up some of it, you know, like all of that was to reset things. So, so how, how, how do we reset some things, right? About who, who has access and who doesn't, whether to power, to education, to actual resources, to loans, to, you know, all of that. He, he's suggesting, you know, that we actually take these categories and, and try to figure out how we can address them today. Jody. I really liked the way you talked about this first and framed how we can look at it in the year of COVID, in the year of staying home, rather than just reading the text first. And then, so I really liked it this year, uh, this week. Uh, 
because it was so important for us to look at it this year and tie it in with the lessons that we've learned and particularly what this year did for the earth for nature because in the very beginning there were dolphins swimming in the Venice canals i mean it was an amazing rest for the earth but then we didn't get it i guess because we did a ton of plastic and rubber gloves and masks i, I, I mean so all that sort of went away and i just feel that it was so important now that things are opening up that this was the Torah portion and i love the way you did it thank you thank you yeah if, if i just it was just stunning like when i read it I, i've read this for you know 25 years but this is the point of Torah study right like right. lee yes you read everything with us for a year you you're you've been through every parsha but guess what <laughs> right? it's different every this time year. we read it we come to something it's like whoa i never read it like that before and that and that the curses we understand them as a theology that does not work for us we know that we're, i'm not suggesting it should work for us i it, it also in this year of covid and 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 looking at the inequities it was very clear to me that these were these curses were the consequences of not letting the land rest. It's going to dry up. You're going to pull all the nutrients out of it. It's going to not yield anymore. And if you don't yield a crop, what happens? Starvation. And what happens with starvation in the region? Well, guess what? Instability because people are going to push in, right? Because that's what happens everywhere. We know that. We know that when there's catastrophe, a natural catastrophe like starvation, um, that you know it, it causes war, we know that. And so um, as populations shift and move around, and, and so we know that that's a consequence. And that then, then how, how are you safe from, you know, the animals that are now looking for, you know, something to eat? And as, as we as moderns encroach on other creatures' land, there was a theory that, well, how do you think we got COVID? <laughs> Um, how do you think we got COVID is, you know, that, that we are now, you know, we're encroaching on bats, you know, and all these wild, you know, species that, that, and whether it's true or not, doesn't matter. The possibility, it could be that it could have been, that's what happened. And if not, th that it will happen, that the more we encroach on these species that, that have been separate from us, the more vulnerable we are to the diseases that they carry. Um, the, the more we cut down the rainforest, <laughs> the, the fewer cures for things we're going to find that live there because the species are being, you know, of plants, of all kinds of things. We're decimating that. There's no reason to believe that any disease we got on this planet can't be cured by something on this planet. Um, but we're, we're killing our own chances. So I guess what I'm saying is the, the curses seem to me like even more than ever to be, yeah, that's right. That's what's going to happen. Right. See, you know, we, we got it that the planet got a break when we quit driving. Right. The CO2 numbers, like how much it went to how much the carbon in, in the atmosphere went down um, was because we quit driving. But like you said, are we going to learn from that? Like, are we, are we going to get it? OK, Bert and then David. Uh, we don't accept this theology. So what do we do? Do with it? Do we throw it out? Do we reconstruct it? That's what I think question. I just did. Did I not just reconstruct it? Well, I thought you threw it out. I thought as 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 being caused by God. Yeah, but if okay. God is everything, if God is all of this unfolding, and if God is part of nature and bigger than nature, well, nature's designed in such a way that if we keep screwing up like this, 
this is the consequence that is of God in that God is the one, you know, God is part of all of this and we're doing this to God. <laughs> My second question, is this just about Shemitah or is this? Is what just about Shemitah? Well, all, all of these consequences, you, you framed it as if it's just no, about. No, no, it's about the covenant. Much it's about all the, all the rules, including when you're, when you're, you know, kinsman falls on hard times, right? Meaning, you know, you're supposed to help them out. That's about, right, and not charge interest to them to help get them back on their feet. That was about loans, right? So maybe yeah, it's not our kinsmen, but is it a fellow American? Yeah. I and, know and, we're not going to go into this now, but this, of course, does bring up the fact that sometimes bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. For sure. And but, so the, but, consequences are, the consequences are not always there. Right. But, but, but when, when bad things happen to good people who didn't deserve it, what are you going to do to help them? No, I, I understand that's a question. And do, you ha- and do they have, do the good people who are poor and they didn't do anything to deserve this when they get sick, are they going to have access to health care? If you who are fine and wealthy don't take care of that, then that these are the consequences that flow from that, right? That we don't create a system where people who did nothing wrong can't access Healthcare for their kids. All right. Um, David, you wanted to say something? You know, um, Amy, I was just thinking about the idea that Shemitah doesn't work in the United States. And I wonder what an endeavor it would be if this group came up with the top 10 things we could do to enact and make this meaningful in this kind of crisis time, I mean, forgiving debt over the impoverished, you know, just comes to mind of so many people that are just suffering because their jobs have been eliminated. They can't live. Why can't we think about that and try to develop some program that would well, work well, with that's, that? That's what, that's what Biden's working on. Right. Like, that's what I heard from him this morning is like, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about us looking at this, taking well, your sermon yeah. to heart. So right, the Hebrew, here are the 10 things we suggest. So here you remember the Hebrew Free Loan Society? You know, that's what I hear. Yeah, talking sure. about. Is, well, what can yeah. we do? You know, well, I think we can support organizations that are addressing this directly as direct service agencies. We can support candidates that we think take this seriously and want to hit hit a reset button and help reach out to those who who are at the edges and the margins and are falling behind and are falling below the threshold that we find acceptable. I mean, I think you know, there's what what can we as a group do? That what well, Bivaka Shah set up a meeting. Let's talk. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, yes. I, I'm yeah, up absolutely. for it. I'm up for it, but it's like, you know, not doing that now, but we can write Emelinda, form a committee. I would in the WAMU show at Northwestern, which is student written um, the whole show. It's like the Hastings pudding show from Harvard. So I was in it all four years of at Northwestern. And um, one of the songs that the, that the audience of students loved and teachers, you know, loved um, was um, let's, Form a committee. It's the democratic way. Let's form a committee. Right. So, and it goes on and on about how, and essentially the, the closing line is so we don't get anything done. <laughs> All right. So, so somebody Can else. Can I make a quick comment? Yes. 
I mean, I'm part of Jewish Free Loan, and I, I was a long time ago, and I got reconnected about a year and a half or two years ago, and they are, we are giving, you know, free loans. I've donated generously, and we're still out there kind of keeping people in apartments, giving people these lifelines. So we're still there. We're called Jewish Free Loan. You don't have to be Jewish to get a loan. So just, it's still there. We're still Great. Going. That's great news. Um, we don't need a committee. It's already there. And, <laughs> right. You know. the, the other thing I think about is the you know, Pacific um, Palisades Task Force on Homelessness, who are doing a really incredible job of um, addressing the, the needs of people who have fallen into homelessness um, with two social workers in a van and, you know, really getting case histories and, and building trust, uh, um, you know, among those folks who, you know, often don't trust and, and so won't get the help that they need. So these are these are all you know, ways that we can participate in um, supporting those who are doing the direct service work. And then we have to do legislative work. We have to be out there, like really, not just voting for, but supporting with our money candidates who we believe are really going to take this stuff on um, and and see it as a priority and see it as their worldview, you know, that that this should happen. Um, Because there's some people who don't think it should happen, right? That why should we give them handouts? Then they'll stay home, you know, rather than come to work, which we heard this week, for, you know, in response to the um, the proposed stimulus. Is you know they'd rather stay home, you know, if they're going to get paid to stay home. So anyway, and I'm not saying there aren't real challenges. I'm not suggesting that. I'm not trying to be Pollyanna about this at all. All I'm saying is that we look at this Torah portion often and go, ugh, right, blah. Like I don't want to hear it. Like yuck. That's not our theology. Like Bert said. So just you know. Should we just throw it out? It's like, no, because that's because it still has power to teach us because I think it's still true. I think it's absolutely true that if we don't take seriously the economic inequities, we are living in a society that is unjust. And if we participate that without any thought or any change to our behavior as a society, we, we are in deep trouble, people. Um you know, just, and, I, and I'll go back for a second. Look at India. Like, how, how is that such a catastrophe? How is that happening? It's going to happen in Africa too. How? Because the inequities there are so deep. And look what's going to happen. It's just going to be an absolute catastrophe. And that, that can happen when you allow the inequities to become, or the, you know, the divide to become too big. We shouldn't think we're too big to fail. And I think that's what Torah is saying, because this is not directed to the poor, by the way. Who is this directed at? This is directed at us, the Israelites who had power, the Israelites who had land, the Israelites who had wealth, the Israelites who had prestige, the Israelites who had connections, the Israelites who thought, oh, you know what? I'll just go to the Four Seasons. I'll be safe there, right? People in quarantine who went to their vacation home in the mountains in Colorado and just stayed there, right? That, that's who this is directed at. Don't think you'll escape it and you'll be fine. Yeah, go to your house in Colorado. Someone's going to come there at some point, right? And take that from you. Your enemy will come and take that from you. So um, I just think it's um, this year more than ever, I feel like we're, we're between those two mountains and, and listening to, okay, if we come out of this, and take these things seriously and start to really think about how to address police reform and really try to put together a com- and support people who are putting together a commission to do that. Like, 
on the ground details, tachlis, concrete solutions and changes and hiring practices of police and training of police and all of those things, you know, then here's the path of blessing. Here's what will happen. Things will be fruitful. If not, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be violence in the streets. Not, it's not violent right now. I'm not saying that, that those demonstrations were violent. But if this continues, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> and rightfully so, right? Like, um, so all right, I want to go to one more piece. Um, and so Yehuda Kurtzer has this article, um, When is Idealism Idolatry? And he's talking a little bit how our passion for these causes. So I'm now I'm going to flip and go to the other side of people who want to make change. We can get pretty revolutionary about it, right? That we were like, all of it has to be, you know, defund the police, you know, or wh- whatever our reaction is to all of this that, that feels revolutionary, that, that that's, that's, that's a place to go. And then the other side feels just as clearly that their morals at like freedom from masks, you can't make me wear a mask because you're, you're now tampering, you're tinkering with my freedoms, you're violating my rights and my freedoms. And then everybody locks in and gets more and more, um, uh, what do you call it? Polarized, right? And so Yehuda Kurtzer is talking about, he says, I understand where the extremism comes from. The instinct to act on behalf of justice is often born out of a sense of deep brokenness and the belief that the prevailing structures of power and authority are fundamentally misguided. Accordingly, it is believed that to promote incremental policy change without redressing the basic infrastructure that underlies the fabric of our societies, even if it creates temporarily better conditions will not lead to societal transformation. The iconoclasm of extremism creates fear in the mainstream about the work of justice, even when its goals may accord with mainstream ethical sensibilities. So think about how people freak out about Black Lives Matter. They just freak out. It's anti-Semitic. No. (laughs) The idea that black men shouldn't be shot for driving while black is not anti-Semitic. Is there some kind of relationship between the actual organization and some of its elements? And okay, fine. But but not, not the mainstream ethical sensibilities of what we're seeing, right? With Black Lives Matter. But the iconoclasm of extremism creates that fear, right? In the mainstream um, about the work of justice. Okay. Even when people really believe people shouldn't be shot for being black, they freak out when it feels like, you know, it's extremism that's happening. And then that creates fear in the mainstream. And I think we are see- we are absolutely seeing that, I, I believe. Uh, he says, I believe there is important work to be done in bringing about justice in this world, both on concrete issues and in more conceptual ways. I also recognize that there are still times when justice can only be pursued through systematic revolutionary overhaul. But I am skeptical of the instincts in America and in Israel to do this urgent work of today against rather than in concert with the existing social and political infrastructure. And he's saying, this is his commentary on Bahar and Gotai. He's saying that's the point of the Torah portion. Yes, we may need even radical change. But he's saying Bahar and Bechukotai teach us that has to happen within the frame, right, of normative legal policies. Leviticus implicitly challenged the impulse to frame social activism over and against normative legal policies. He says, 
while the paradigm of exodus as revolution is well known to us, right? Liberation theology, turn it all over, get the heck out of there, get out of the system. Here, the Torah reminds us that this narrative must also inform how we live after the revolution by demanding that we create just laws for all members of our society. You can read the rest of this on your own. Obviously, I'm just lifting up a few points. One inherent risk in justice work is that we become convinced that it is through the adoption of our ethical ideals alone that society can be improved rather than seeing that we must work together with others to discern how best to implement God's vision of justice through the norms we establish for our society. Meaning, and I hate to say it, you know, because I also free, we have to work across the aisle, even with folks who refuse to wear a mask, I think is what Yehuda Kurtzer is saying here. Uh, recognition of God's role in the work of justice demands of us great humility as we cannot revel in our iconoclasm or stand on the periphery and hurl insults at others involved in shaping our societies. Rather, we must invest ourselves in the often slow and arduous process of improving our communities, listening carefully for the echo of the exodus and the whispers from Sinai pulsing across space and time. So yes, revolution, sometimes that energy is called for, and we were familiar with that from the Exodus, but we have to listen carefully for the echo of the Exodus and the whispers from Sinai pulsing across space and time, including our Parsha uh, this week, our Parshiot um, this week. Um, and so Susan, you're letting us know that Jeff will come home tomorrow after seven days in the ICU. We're very, very, very happy to hear that. We're very happy to hear that. Thank you so much. Um, and so, (laughs) so we come to the end of the book of Leviticus. And so always when we close uh, a book, we say together, Chazak, Chazak, Venit Chazak. Um, that we we should be strengthened uh, to continue studying Torah together. And also what we do is we begin uh, the next book of the Torah. Uh, we begin together the book of Numbers because we are never to be in between um, books of the Torah. On the first day of the second month, in the second year following the exodus from the land of Egypt, Adonai spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting, saying, take a census of the whole Israelite community by the clans of its ancestral houses, listing the names every male head by head. So we have begun our study together of Bamidbar, of the book of Numbers. May we be uh, strengthened to, uh, for Lee, for you to have another year of Torah study, uh, May we all come uh, to the study of the book of Numbers in health uh, and strength, and may our curiosity and our commitment to study stay strong. Um, and I don't know a stronger, uh, a stronger group than this one. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.